Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 is about hope. It's not about having the mere feeling of hopefulness. It's about trusting in someone who gives you grounds for believing that good will ultimately triumph over evil. Our psalmist, and let's presume that it was indeed King David, is beset by a sea of troubles. But rather than taking up arms to oppose the the verbal slings and arrows of his malicious accusers, he turns his attention to God. Despite the machinations of those who would tear up his reputation by character assassination, David expresses hope that God will be his light in the darkness, his stronghold in the siege. Things may be dark now, but David takes heart in the belief that however long it may take, he will eventually see the goodness of the Lord. 
that in God's providence, his wicked foes will stumble and fall, and he will hold his head up high. One thing we can learn from Psalm 27 is that although God is a mighty one who will save, Zephaniah 3.17, it's not unusual to find ourselves waiting until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed, 1 Peter 1.5. Of course, we can't apply Psalm 27 to our own lives in a simplistic way. Uh, David's confidence was that God will save him in the land of the living. Well, that doesn't guarantee that God will save us in the land of the living. Nevertheless, there are things that we can learn from how David copes with trouble by waiting on the Lord. One thing David does is to focus his attention on the expressed will of God. The temple is uh, an architectural expression of God's promise. His promise to dwell with his people. And it speaks of the closeness of God to his people, of his willingness to forgive his people, and is thereby an encouragement to seek after him. In New Testament terms, the the sacrificial functions of the temple have, of course, been superseded by the high priesthood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the corporate body of Christ that is, the church, has replaced the temple itself. Hence, in times of trouble, we should turn to the church and return to the foot of the cross. David, quite naturally, lacks a New Testament perspective on how God's righteous determination to make things right extends beyond the grave and into the yet undiscovered country of the new heavens and earth, created in the wake of the resurrected Christ. Have a look at Revelation 21. And yet, in light of Jesus' self-identification with this Old Testament image of the rock, uh, think of uh, the wise man who built his house upon the rock in Matthew 7, We can't ignore the gospel resonance that we find in verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. A second thing that David does is to focus his attention on past experiences of God's righteousness. That is, of God's acting to save people in relationship with him. Verse 9 speaks of how God has been David's helper. Interestingly, the Hebrew word translated here as helper is the, the very same word used of Eve in Genesis. It's the word pronounced Aza. And it's always and only used in the Old Testament in the context of vitally important, powerful acts of rescue and support. 
It's also possible to translate verse 2 as stating in the past tense that uh, when evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. So on the basis of God's character as expressed in his past acts of salvation, we too can join with the psalmist in saying, we wait in hope for the Lord, he is our help and our shield. It's from Psalm 33. Finally, David focuses attention on the beauty of God, referenced in verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The Hebrew term translated here as beauty is elsewhere translated sometimes as favour or sweetness. Um, Psalm 90.17 says, Let the favour, the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Beauty is joyfully ascribed to God also in in, uh, Zechariah 9.17 for how great is the goodness and how great his beauty. When Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he actually uses uh, a Greek word kalos which means something like the beautiful good. I am the beautiful good shepherd. In these days of the new covenant written in the blood of the beautiful good shepherd, we are in an even better position than David to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul recommended to the persecuted Philippian church, whatever is lovely and worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. David's desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord uh, reminds me of the 4th century BC Greek philosopher Plato, who in his symposium wrote this. This is the right way of being initiated into the mysteries of love, to begin with examples of beauty in this world and to use them as steps to ascend continually to absolute beauty. This, above all other things, is the region where a truly human life should be spent, in the contemplation of absolute beauty. One who contemplates absolute beauty and is in constant union with it will be able to bring forth not merely reflected images of goodness, but true goodness, because one will be in contact, not with a reflection, but with the truth. What may we suppose to be the felicity of the man who sees absolute beauty in its essence, pure and unalloyed, who is able to appreciate the divine beauty? Indeed, just as saying that uh, one route to our destination is really straighter than another route entails the existence of of a straightest possible route. So saying that one thing is really 
more beautiful than another thing entails that there exists a most beautiful possible reality. And that is God. So these three things, what God has said, what God has done, and what God is in and of himself, can be our stronghold amidst the the slings and arrows of our problems as we confidently await the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Amen.